Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions for each podcast for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, we are going to continue to look at Bible stories of characters who appear together or are biblically famous together. Last week it was Martha and Mary and Jesus, and this week we shall see Nabal and Abigail and David. And then next week we will look into the account of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. This week's story and next week's story will also help serve as good background for a series we will then begin covering the parable of the prodigal son and all of Luke chapter 15. Our passage today is found in 1 Samuel 25. David, who has not yet been made king of Israel, though Samuel the prophet had already anointed him to be the future king, he is on the run from the current king, the jealous King Saul, who is hunting him down. Why is Saul hunting David down? Because Saul was aware of how Samuel the prophet, the leader of Israel at that time, had told David, or excuse me, had told Saul that the kingdom would be torn from him and given to a neighbor who was better than him. And after that incident, David was made famous through his courageous victory over Goliath the giant. David's popularity had grown in the land, and in 1 Samuel 18, the women began to sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was angry about it, so much so that he wished David dead. As a result, David, along with several hundred men, began to flee Saul and avoid him altogether. Which brings us to our story then in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So if you turn there, you could maybe follow along and and read with us as we look at verse 2. Now, there was a man in Mon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, it's as if we could make a list uh, of character qualities or actions and things in this story. Make a piece of paper in three columns. One for Nabal, one for David, and one for Abigail. Because uh, we see here that we could make a list and make some observations about Nabal here. He is a man, indeed the man, and we could see that he was very rich. Had a thousand sheep and a thousand goats. And it's the time of season where they are sheep shearing. They're shearing sheep. It's a lot of hard work for those who are involved. They have to do it as quickly as possible. And it's many with his large of a, a flock that he has. Uh, it's an intense time and a lot of hard work. And then it's followed um, after with a nice festival and celebration, similar to harvest time for a sheep rancher. This would be like harvest time. Now, this man's name was Nabal, which is interesting. It means fool, <laughs> shamelessly improper. 
Now, surely that's really not his given name, but it was designated to him, probably through his actions or reputation. It says now in verse 3, the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. Uh, but, in contrast, the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. So on the Abigail list, we could add here that she was there, that, that Nabal was married to Abigail. So Abigail was the, husband, was the wife of Nabal. Uh, she was a woman of good understanding, uh, just means wise, uh, you know, kind of sharp. Uh, uh, she's also uh, very easy on the eyes, a woman of beautiful appearance. Her name, incidentally, Abigail, means my father's joy. But, in contrast, that word in the middle of verse 3, but Nabal, well, some more things to add about his character. He was harsh. In direct contrast to the good understanding of his wife. He's harsh. And he's evil in his doings. We'll even see a reference to that later in this story. And he was of the house of Caleb. That would show his, his, his Jewish, um, the tribe and so forth that he's associated with through Caleb. Well, uh, this introduces us to David now. David, uh, at this time, verse 5, sent 10 young men, and uh, he sent them up to Carmel to go to Nabal and greet him in the name of David. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, and your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them. All the while they were in Carmel. So we ask your young men, and then they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men and find favor in your eyes, for we come for, for, uh, on a feast day, and please give whatsoever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So he makes a very uh, an appeal because his men are out there in the wilderness and they're running from Saul, um, but they have been intermingling with Nabal's shepherds, and all this time up there they had even helped protect them. We'll even see later they protected the shepherds. Nothing was ever missing from the shepherds. They did no ill will to the to the shepherds nor the sheep. So all of Nabal's uh, possessions or sheep and such were all intact, and that's a good thing because you know there were people that would steal sheep, and there was. Uh, you know, could be other issues. So he's appealing to Nabal now for some food and provisions for his men. He does it with peaceful greetings. He says, in the name of David, he does it to Nabal, who uh, he does this with honor. There's a, it's an honorable request, acknowledging Nabal and, and who he is. And in fact, he waits until the feast day because David himself was a shepherd and he knows that it's a lot of hard work when it comes to shearing. It's hard work and you don't want to interrupt him in those two, three, four days of intense labor and work. But on the last day, so he's coming on the last day when they're now celebrating, they're going to have a big feast. It also mentions here that uh, Nabal lives in prosperity. We see here in verse 6. And so, he, again, we can see he's wealthy, he's successful, he has air-conditioned chariots and other you know, good things, nice things, because he lives in prosperity. Uh, now, um, though, as they're appealing, David is for some provisions, this is what happens in verse 10. The story kind of goes in the wrong direction, because it, then it tells us that Nabal dishonored David and his men. And he insults David. He says, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? In other words, what do I have to do with him? Many servants today who re they rebel and they run away from their master. Is he just another punk who's running away from his master, wandering around in the wilderness? So it's a direct insult. In an honor-shame society, this is dishonoring 
to David. Now, Nabal is either ignorant of current events or, you know, or he's aware of them, but he has his own strong opinion and so forth. Because current events, I mean, good grief, David had defeated Goliath, a famous story, not too long, you know, a little bit earlier in the, you know, year or two, or what, I'm not sure the time frame, but in the pre near past, he had defeated Goliath. Um, Saul had become very jealous of him and was actually had chased him out of Jerusalem. Or, and, uh, and now we see that there's a, he's chasing him down. And in fact, the chapter before, there was a, a little uprising with Philistines, and uh, David and his men had another victory in, in Kila. Kila, Kila is the place. And this isn't even that far from where uh, Nabal would have lived at that time, probably within 40 miles or so of where he was. Uh, the enemy had been pushed back or another victory by David and his men. So there's hardly, it's hard to imagine that Nabal doesn't really know anything about David or what's going on. It's more likely he might be not that concerned about it or whatever, but he certainly has his own opinion. And he may see David as just an upstart, another punk. You know, he's out there running in the wilderness, and maybe David is a, or a, a Nabal is a Saul kind of guy. So he foolishly insults, and he just has this improper dismissal of it all. In fact, he further states in verse 11, why should I give my water and meat for my shears? And give it to some no-name. <laughs> this reflects again that Nabal was selfish. Because at the Feast of the Shears, this is a generous time. And it's a time for lavish hospitality. Maybe think of like our Christmas time uh, in our culture. So it's a flat-out dishonoring. And it says the men, uh, David's young men, turned on their heels in verse 12 and went back. They were insulted. By Nabal. And they go back and they let uh, David know all about it. And so in verse 13, we see that David says, rise up. We're going to rise up. And he intends to kill every single male under Nabal's employ. And verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13, David said to all his men, every man gird on his sword and every man rise up. He takes 400 men with him prepared to slaughter really? What kind of reaction is this? You know, from our culture, we look at that and shake our head. That seems bizarre. But we have to stop and discuss a bit about honor and shame as a key factor in this culture, in this, because the, this, this, the, the culture that we are reading of all through the Bible is honor-shame culture predominantly. And there we have something called honor. This is meaning to be in good standing or to be respected in the community. Honor is based on relationships. It comes in collective settings. And it's super important. It's like a commodity you need to have. A bad act dishonors yourself, but it also then can bring dishonor to your family, extended family, your whole village. The whole community can be dishonored through uh, improper actions. Shame is what comes with that, then. It's to fall out of favor with the community, <clears throat> to be seen as improper. The person, then, is fallen out of favor. Now, this is different than our Western guilt-innocence culture, where we, we are dominated by the prominence of rule of law, and all people are equal under the law. Guilt comes in our society when we commit a wrong act. I did something wrong, and I know there's a right and wrong code that I know. This is far more individual. We all know these standards, the rules, the laws, and then we do something. We know that we did something wrong. Even if nobody sees it, you know it was wrong and you'll have an internal sense of guilt. 
Shame comes, however, when we're rejected by a community. And when we do something wrong and it's the community is now aware of that and there's bringing shame on the community, the thinking isn't that I did something wrong. The thinking is I am intrinsically wrong. See, shame is far more corporate. Others see that you failed in character in one way or another, more than just even the act, and, if, and, and therefore you're brought shame on. And if nobody sees it, though, well, then you're okay. See, there's a different awareness of right and wrong that we go by, and it's more of a community right and wrong in a shame culture. So now both honor and shame and rule and guilt and innocence, they can develop beyond biblical standards. We can have laws that do not really reflect God's ways, and they are not, uh, even though they might be a part of the rule of law, they're not really under God's morality. Like today, we might have laws that say that abortion is not taking a life, and yet we know from the, from the scriptures, God says life, well, that is a life. You could have cultural norms in an honor-shame society that are not of God. Like, it's okay to rise up and take revenge and kill many people when you're dishonored. Well, <laughs> no, that's not really quite God's ways at all. So David's wrath and being dishonored is legit, but the extreme that he's now about to enter into, that, that, may not, that might seem reasonable perhaps in that culture, but it's not going to go before the Lord. Well, now we're introduced at verse 14 um, to Abigail. Now one of the young men of Nabal's, he told Abigail, and he came to Abigail and he explained everything. And he said, look, David has sent messengers um, to greet our master, and he reviled them. Notice he reviled, he dishonored them, but the men were very, his David's men, when we were out in the wilderness, they were really good to us, and we were not hurt. We didn't miss anything as long as we accompanied them. Verse 16, uh, they were a wall to us, both by night and day, until he, until the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider, as he's speaking to Abigail, what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household for our master? He's such a scoundrel. One cannot speak to him. <laughs> so we see a young man of Nabal's coming and reporting this all to Abigail. Why? Because she is seen as someone who can be of help, someone who will listen. She's approachable. She's known as wise. And, and the issue here is Nabal has reviled David and his men. He's brought dishonor. But David and his men, he says, were good to us and protected us even when we were in the fields. Now to Abigail, he says, consider what you will do. Harm will come on us. And then he added, because he's a scoundrel. We could add this character list for Nabal. He's a scoundrel. And you cannot tell him anything. <laughs> he's just right. His perspective is right. His opinion is right. Everything he does, he's right. You can't tell him anything. So... He approaches Abigail because you can talk to her. She's the opposite, really, of Nabal. Well, she goes right into action. She puts together a large amount of provisions to offer David in bulk. She understands this situation. She gets together bread, wine, five dressed sheep, roasted grain, raisins, cakes, figs, and loads them on donkeys, plural, on donkeys. Notice they're, they're generous, very generous, and they're, this is a wealthy household. She does not tell Nabal, verse 19 mentions. Why? Because you can't tell him anything. And actually, he's brought their whole household into grave danger, and she's going to seek to reverse that. So she meets David in verse 20, approaching. Can you imagine that? She is on a donkey with these provisions, 
and coming at her are 400 armed, ready-to-kill men with David. This is intimidating. Abigail needs courage, and the Lord provides it. You know, women normally don't even talk to men or wouldn't approach them in this culture like this, uh, let alone a man leading a small army. So when David, when they, when they come together in verse 21 and 22, David begins and rehearses his grievance and what he's about to do, Nabal, what Nabal did to him and the insult and the dishonor and how he's going to take every last meal. He says, in vain I protected Nabal's men. Now you're all going to die. In verse 21, he mentioned how Nabal repaid with evil for good that David had done. And that's exactly what... <laughs> Uh, it says even earlier, as we mentioned earlier, about one of Nabal's characters, he does evil deeds. Well, notice now Abigail, though, in her amazing humility in verse 23. We see she humbly approaches David. She dismounted quickly. It's going to mention three separate descriptions. She fell on her face, she bowed to the ground, and she fell at his feet. So the scriptures are emphasizing thrice fold here her posture of humility. And then she refers to herself as David's maidservant, your maidservant. And she will call herself this seven times in, the, in our story now from this point forward. And she says, please let your maidservant speak in your ears. She humbly asks for her to speak, him to let her speak and hear the words of your maidservant. Now in verse 25, she goes on and says, please let, she's going to assume responsibility actually in verse 24. Before that, she mentions, let me talk about my uh, Nabal's iniquity. <laughs> so she's already acknowledging that Nabal is wrong here. And then she calls David, my Lord. Let me speak my Lord to my Lord here in verse 24. This is the first of 15 occurrences. She's going to refer to David and our story from here forward as my Lord. 15 times, seven times, I am your maidservant. Three times we see how she's described, how she falls on the ground and fell at his feet and so forth. All of this emphasizing great humility as she also acknowledges Nabal's iniquity. David wisely is willing to listen to her. He stops with his approach and he's willing to listen to her. And who wouldn't really with that kind of beginning, being called to the Lord, she's my, your maidservant, it's a good start. And so now she makes request in verse 25. Um, Let not my regard, uh, Lord, regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as is his name is, so he is he. Nabal is his name. And it means, and it's folly. And folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. So she starts by saying, Liz, I, I know that uh, Nabal is indeed a fool. That's what his name is and what it indicates. And I wasn't there when your men came. Now you might think this is like some major disrespect to, to David, but there's real evidence that it's not because as our story ends, you're going to see that David blesses her, takes her counsel, blesses the Lord, and even later uh, is going to propose marriage to her. So if he thought that she was being a uh, disrespectful wife and so forth, uh, that would be like an uh, you know, a warning light to him, and he would not, probably not at all have pursued her. That is what she had come across as. But what she is coming across as is just honest. This is a crisis. This is a situation, and it happened because Nabal is not wise, and I wasn't there. 
So verse 26, she now is going to refer, Therefore, my Lord David, as the Lord Jehovah lives, and as your soul lives since the Lord Jehovah has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your hand. Notice she's saying the Lord Jehovah wants you to not do this. But what's significant is uh, Abigail now mentions Jehovah. And she's now going to mention him six times in this story. She's the first one to do so. David will mention him twice in response to her. As she's the one who got this thing going in terms of where Jehovah, the God, creator God, sovereign God, where does he fit in all this? <clears throat> her speech to David is also going to include some prophecy making her one of seven Jewish women who give prophecy, prophets. She says, the Lord is going to make for you, David, an enduring house. You're going to have a lasting dynasty. And that indeed does happen, especially through Solomon and then all the way through the seed of, uh, of David to, to Jesus Christ. She says, evil is not found in you throughout your days, and you are fighting the battles of Jehovah. She says, your life will be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, referring to a figure of speech, how they would wrap up valuables in a bundle. And she says, your life is like a valuable thing that God has in a bundle. And the lives of your enemies, the Lord will sling out, as you think of a sling, and where you put the stone is this area that she's referring to. And maybe it's a reference to Goliath and that reputation. She says, you will be appointed ruler ruler over Israel in verse 30. And you know, that's the first public mention of that. Samuel had anointed David, but that was in a private setting earlier. So she's got insight, prophetic insight here. You will be the king. And you will then be glad you didn't avenge yourself because then you'll have grief over it <laughs> if you had done this or if you will do this. And she says in verse 31, remember your maidservant, a request there to, for him to honor her as well. And, and when this is over. A really wise speech, Abigail, loaded with humility, giving David honor, recognizing the situation, bringing the Lord into it, and speaking with confidence as the Lord directs her to David. And how does David receive this in verse 32? He, David, said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you to this day to meet me. He praises Jehovah. And then he says, blessed is your counsel and blessed are you. He blesses the Lord. He blesses Abigail's wise counsel and he blesses Abigail. He's thanking her and he recognizes the Lord's intervention in this situation. He's sensitive to Jesus, to, to, to Jehovah rather, and he's responding and he blesses her and he says, this is good and right. And then he acknowledges her brave act. He says, for indeed, in verse 34, because of what you've done, you have kept me back from hurting you and your household and all that belongs to Nabal. You just saved the day, Abigail. <laughs> he says this. And he acknowledges her brave act. And then in verse 35, he receives all of her provisions. And he respects your person. Indeed, he says, I have heeded your voice at the end of verse 35 and respected your person. So he gives honor in return to Abigail. Well, in verse 36, we then see that that whole crisis is now averted, just the last part of the story now. Uh, David apparently, you know, has obviously gone back, and now Abigail goes to Nabal. Maybe she maybe wanted to tell him, but she sees that now they're in the midst of the shearing feast in the house, and he's having a feast that says a feast like the feast of a king, which is interesting because he's not a king. 
So he again is overplaying his hand and he's also very drunk and he's been making merry. So she goes, I can't tell him anything at this point in this state. So she doesn't. She waits until the next day in verse 37 in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife told him these things, everything that happened. His heart died within him and he became like a stone, meaning most likely he was paralyzed. He had a stroke and became paralyzed. Why? We can see in a minute why that would be, but notice he's overcome with shame. And with a stroke, he's paralyzed. And the Lord, in verse 37, 10 days later, he lives like this. And then in verse 38, the Lord just takes him home, takes his life. In verse 39, we see David hears of this and he blesses Jehovah again, acknowledging how, again, Jehovah had kept David from doing evil and having regret from overplaying his honor, shame, anger. And one more little thing, verse 39, he sent his servants to Abigail and he proposes to Abigail to take her as his wife. So when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. He sends his servants to do it. It's like junior high, right? Like, hey, do you think David's cute? He thinks you're cute. <laughs> at any rate, uh, Abigail shows her humility one more time. She then washes the feet of David's servants, showing good hospitality. Again, part of that honor, shame, culture, an appropriate thing to do. And she accepts, and in verse 42, she goes to David and becomes his wife, bringing five maidservants with her, as she again had a woman of some means here. And so it's a happy ending of the story, isn't it? They get married. And it is a happy ending, but it's not a perfect ending. Because in verse 43, David also took Ahonom of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. Because Saul had been given Michael as his daughter, it was his first wife, David's wife, uh, to, uh, but then Saul had given his first wife, Michael, his daughter, uh, he'd given her to be married to someone from Gallim in a way, in a means of showing a way to spite David. So David didn't have that first wife anymore. So he, Abigail would have become his first wife. But then how would any first wife feel when the man brings home a second wife? This isn't God's design. Polygamy, of course, we know, never is uh, strictly forbidden in the scripture, but it's never God's model, design, or his will. So, of course, the woman's going to feel scorned. And in this case, David then dishonors Abigail very quickly, soon after this whole story. But it's still a positive outcome for her when you think about it. She is rid of Nabal, a very hard man to be with, I'm sure. She brings a lot of wealth now because she's a widow and she's in control of that wealth. And she brings this into her new marriage where she's the first wife, at least temporarily. And she has status as the king's wife as he's going to go on and become the king and so forth in this long legacy now of David living in Jerusalem. And she's there. She's one of his wives. And her story is memorialized here in this chapter for millions and millions to read and to draw from as she is the hero of the day. So let's finish by asking some questions. Um, who is the hero of the story? Well, it's Abigail. And which one brought the Lord into the forefront of the situation? Well, that's Abigail. And what can we deduce about spiritual leadership? Well, it can come from anyone. Anyone willing to follow the Lord. You know, earlier David, as a young teen, was with the one who went and slew Goliath. 
in front of all the older soldiers, a youngster. We know Mary as a t- pregnant teenager in the story of Je- the mother of Jesus and how she was a spiritual leader and believed in the scriptures and was bold. Daniel was an older man, a prime minister in his case. So we see a variety. It's just anyone willing to step up and walk out, step and walk with the Lord. And here we see Abigail, the wife, who does the same. The spiritual leadership in our chapter, our story, did not come from the husband leader, Nabal. It did not come from the king soon to be and the soon leader of Israel. It came from Abigail. How do you most effectively lead? Well, we see Abigail demonstrates with humility. And she had vertical awareness. The Lord was in her heart and on her mind, and she was aware of things spiritually, and she had horizontal awareness. She was aware of the events of the day and her speech to prophecy to David. She knew that he would be the king. She knew that Saul had been on the run. She knew things that were going on, and she was aware of that which was going on around her. And then she stepped out by faith, and she rode her donkey to the forefront, believing and confident in her spiritual awareness. You see, you lead from where you are, friends. You lead from where you are at and from who you are. And wherever wherever you are, we all have the opportunity to lead in our sphere and our environment and the things as we walk in the things of the Lord. She may have even had personal failure that morning, but then as she finds out all that's happening and a crisis arises, she draws and responds within the framework of her faith and her vertical awareness and her horizontal awareness. And she employs what she, who she is and her brain and her spiritual pulse, her personality, and goes into action. And the Spirit of God, as we assume, is behind all that as we see what occurs. So there's no complex formula for leadership, really. We start with humility, vertical connection, and then use... Um, our thinking ability and our awareness of that surround us and our natural personality allow the Lord to use us. Now, why do you think Nabal's heart died within him? Nabal has a stroke. Why? Well, some say it's because maybe he's so mad at rebellious Abigail for helping out his enemy and dishonoring him. But I really don't think that's it at all. She saved his life and the life of all of his men. And even he would recognize her as a wise woman. So no, he died of shame. He had overwhelming shame. He's ruined. He had insulted and dishonored the future king of Israel. And he's now lost honor with his men and in his community. And it's so overwhelming, so important that this brings such emotional travail that he has a stroke. And after some days, God made it final. See, honor, shame is very significant. And Nabal was in a state of shame. What spiritual realities was Abigail aware of? As we've mentioned, we knew who David was. She knew who David was. She knew how he had victory over Goliath. She knew how he was being chased by Saul. She knew how David's going to win. He's going to be the king. There's going to be a dynasty. She knew the Lord has was blessing him and that it's wrong even to take excess vengeance. And so think of these awarenesses that she's aware of as she gets on her donkey and goes to him. And you can see how the spiritual outlook and her faith and these knowing of these things would give her courage to approach David as she walked by faith. And then notice how David heard her. Man, he was rejoicing. He, re- he heard, heeded her and respected her person and recognized the Lord in all of this. That's exactly what Nabal did not do to David. He didn't hear him. You could tell David something. <laughs> Abigail did. And he responded. Notice God's providential assistance to keep David from sin 
and he took it. Isn't that awesome? We have sensitivity to the Lord. The Lord works in our life providentially in ways we may, may not even necessarily see at first, but then we see, boy, this is the Lord here. David says, I've got this unreasonable emotional anger, and I'm about to really overstep myself here. But the Lord has sent someone. The Lord has sent counsel, and he ponders, and he stops, and he changes as the Lord intervenes before the action. And our next story with David and Bathsheba, you're going to see there's no preventative action from the Lord, preventative action or a message from the Lord. But there is, it comes afterwards. This is indicative where David is in that story. His spiritual sensitivities were much more dull, as we'll see next week. And the Lord acts afterwards. So some applications for, from Nabal, you know, he was successful. The one good thing, he was a hard worker and he was, had some wealth. But boy, he was a difficult personality. People even gave him that new name of fool. He was hard to work with. He was headstrong. You can't tell him anything. He's always right. This is evidenced by his take on David and his view of the politics of his day. And yet, when it's all said and done, he was conformist, actually. He was now conforming to the community and how they really saw things. So there's no real room for his cavalier views and his arrogant claims or his foolish opinions, meaning all of his foolish opinions and how he saw the events of the day was just worldliness. It's just his thoughts, and it was all actually quite harmful. The remedy for that, if we're like that, is we need to be, and we should be, or hopefully can be more oriented to the Lord and aware of his wisdom, aware of how he functions in his way, and how he thinks and sees people in the world around him. From David, we can see that the Lord will give us sensitive intervention in our life. And like warning lights with our emotions, the Lord himself gives us other ways of perhaps getting our attention and inner conviction. And believers, may we learn from that and be willing to stop and listen and slow down and be spared from a serious problem. And then we can think from Abigail, she was... Every day, ready for what faced her, we could assume. She had a reflection in her inner life. It's good to pursue having a, an inner life that is aware and spiritual truths and things that are accessible in our thinking. She relied on her spiritual knowledge and her spiritual view. She stepped out bravely. That's good for us to hope to be like that. She was aware of life around her and not isolated. She didn't just shut up and cook. She was engaged in life. And that is good as well. She was known for her wisdom. So with Abigail, we can see some of these traits and, and hope that the Lord builds those into our life as well. What an incredible story. So much for us to learn from all these three characters. I trust it's been helpful as we see the goodness of God prevailing and just as it will in your life too. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these examples that we can read and learn from. We pray for each of us, Father, that as we listen, that we can be stretched in our thinking, encouraged in some way, challenged in some way, and drawn to you in many ways. So thank you for your attention to detail in all of our lives and for your faithfulness and for even these kinds of stories that we can be encouraged by. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And again, just remember, until next time, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.